If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn to Genesis chapter 14 as we continue now in the um, scriptures and uh, this introduction to the life and the history of Abraham. Uh, chapter 14 is a fascinating chapter of scripture. I want to read the whole chapter um, with us this morning and then uh, we'll take a few minutes to open it up um, together uh, with you. There's a bunch of names in here. I may muck them up pretty badly. I've tried my best to rehearse them, but uh, here goes. In the days of Armraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Cherdolorama, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Golan, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Cherdoloamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cherdoloamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karinem, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavath Kirathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Param and the border of the wilderness. It sounds like a, one of the Star Wars movies, doesn't it? Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboyan, the king of Bela, that is Zorah, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidon, where Cherdol Luamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Arm Raphael, king of Sinar, and Arioch, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anor, these were allies of Abraham. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Cherdolaramur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavath, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. 
And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Father, thank you for this word that is before us today. Fascinating account, historical account of the world and your way in the world. Father, we need help as we go through this. We need your spirit to open our eyes and instruct us and teach us this is the living word of God. And it is good for us. It is beneficial for us for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. May it be so this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 14 is a complex chapter in Scripture for so many reasons. And it's one in which Abraham goes international. There is a military campaign described in uh, 12 verses, which concludes with Lot, his nephew or kinsman, being taken ha uh, captive. And that is what draws Abraham into the battle. The aftermath of the victory and what is recorded contains two of the most fascinating encounters in all of the Old Testament. Two kings, one from Salem and one from Sodom, come to meet Abraham on his way back from the battle. And through these events and through these verses, we realize how God is working out his promises to Abraham to give him the land and to give him a people and to bless him before all the nations of the world and to curse him or to curse the nations of the world that curse him. It's a story of incredible rescue, of Abraham's rescue of Lot and of the ongoing rescue of Abraham's sons and daughters down through history. I've got four basic points that I want to make from this text, uh, or I think that the text makes is a better way to put it. One is simply the complexities of human history. I don't know if you would recognize this, but this is the first time now in the Bible where biblical events are expressly coordinated with external history. It's the first time in the Bible where you find the interaction of God's people with the world around them. And when you read this list of kings, it reads like an ancient Near East chronicle of a war. And you can find these written on tablets. This is what ancient kings did. They would recount in this way. You can read them, their exploits as they went and they conquered various lands and various peoples. This is simply what kings did. They waged war against one another. It is what has been happening for 4,000 years, and it is still happening today. Here we have four kings from the northeast exerting their power and their authority over five kings from the south. And it's a classic storyline, again, repeated again and again, of, of a group of uh, people being um, in servitude to another group of people. After a period of time, they rebel and say, we've had enough. The rebellion is quashed, and they are once again returned to servitude to those who had power over them. And you read that here. They had 
12 years of being under the thumb of Chertoloamer. They had a year of rebellion where they thought, we've got this one, we're free. And in the 14th year, Chertoloamer comes with the other three kings to set things straight. So it was a revolt of the cities of the plain that started the ball rolling, so to speak. The army came from the north and they followed a well-worn trade path or what is known as the King's Highway. They would have swept down from the north, followed the eastern edge of the Jordan River, past the Dead Sea, continued down into Seir, then circled back up the northwest on their way back up, dispatching the Amalekites and the Amorites and ending up at the Valley of Sidon to face the five kings. The result would have been those five kings and their peoples would have been terrified. They would have been well aware of this movement of the kings from the north. How they had circled around them and they had squashed and defeated any possible hope that these five kings might have had of calling them to help them in their fight against these four kings from the north. And so now they were isolated, they were intimidated, and they were by themselves as they now faced these kings in the Great Valley. I have a couple maps just to allow you to see what it might be like um, before you. Uh, the first map just shows the four kings coming down from the north and the top. And you see the route that they took as they come down the east side of the Jordan River, past the Dead Sea. They sweep down almost to Alath, and then they come back up. And you see Zerar there, and that's where the valley or the war would have been. And then they go up, and you see how Abraham chases them, five and six. And so that gives you one picture. We flip to the next one, and it kind of gives the same scene again. But you have the same uh, picture of them coming down, turning around. You have the Sodom Valley there where they would have fought and then their route back up north. So it just gives you a visual to understand that this is not made up. This is the, the history of how the kings would have traveled. And it's a history of the trade route that kings would have taken. And so as the Bible describes it, when they finally get to fighting the five kings from the south... It explicitly mentions that some of the, or that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and some of their men were lost in the tar pits at the bottom of the Dead Sea. They were bitumen pits. Now, they could have hid in those pits, or they could have also fallen into them and have been lost. And then we read, as this scripture tells us, that others of them then fled to the mountains. And that's the same route that Lot and his daughters would have taken a little while later, when Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain were destroyed by fire. As they fled, the spoils of those cities laid before the, the kings that had come down from the north. They were unprotected and they helped themselves, which is again what they did. It says they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and they went on their way back. That would teach them. They would never rebel again as they lost their wives and their servants and their children and all their wealth taken by these kings from the north. But the Bible is very clear also. It separates Lot and his possessions and it said that they also took Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions. And note what it says. For he was living in Sodom. Last time we found Lot, he had his tent pitched toward Sodom. Now he is living in Sodom. And they went on. 
And it was this capture of Lot that changed everything. And it was this that was the final straw for Abraham because Lot was his nephew or his kinsman. And as you think about this, if you're tracking with us over the last couple weeks, we're beginning to see now more of the unseen dangers that Lot faced when he walked out of the will of God and left the promised land. Did he know when he left the promised land to go to the cities of the plain that they were beholden to the kings of the north? Did he have any understanding as he moved his family into Sodom that they were paying tribute to the kings of the north? Did he have any understanding that they were now considering rebelling against the kings of the north? Did he realize the danger that he had put his vast possessions in and his family in when he moved himself into Sodom? Funny, isn't it, how when you read this text, that Lot is passive. Why was he not part of the battle group? Why was he not part of the, the men that, that went out to face the kings in battle? He was actually in the cities, and when they came into the cities, they dragged him away with all his wealth. As this happened and they made their way back north, Abraham was, or Abraham was informed that his nephew Lot had been taken captive. Abraham called out 318 Specific number, 318 men who had been raised in his household, fighting men, trained men for war. It's the only time that word is ever used in the scriptures. And he joins forces with Mamre, Eskol, and Aner, with whom he was bound by a treaty. And they also had some skin in the game, because these kings had destroyed the Amorites, and Mamre and his brothers were Amorites. And so they had a reason to also join the battle with Abraham as he went chasing after these kings. They went up the king's highway. They would have gone as far as Dan. And this, and this is not a short trip. It would have been about 175 kilometers. That's a long journey to be chasing after a bunch of kings and all their armies and all their possessions. And in a surprise attack at night, which is often when you read in Scripture, and actually in the history of wars, this is the way how, how smaller armies often have an advantage and beat larger armies because they attack at night. And Abraham devised this plan to attack by night. They split up their forces. They, they, they ravaged these kings. They pushed them as far as uh, just past Damascus, so another 65 kilometers. And then he made his way home. And he brought back all the goods and also all the uh, lot and all of his goods as well as the women and the other people. And you say, well, what's going on here? On the one hand, you have the history of the world unfolding. And we might be tempted to think that what matters is world history. We might want to think that world history trumps redemptive history. That what really matters is what's going on outside these four walls in all the countries of the world in which we live. But that would be wrong. Because what this text and then numerous texts after it teach us is that world history is merely a backdrop for redemptive history. And that what really is going on in the world is God's way with his people. God's way with, with, with fulfilling his promise to Abraham to give him sons and daughters that are more numerous than the stars of the heavens and the sands of the sea. 
What is really going on is how God works out his plans and his purposes amidst the comings and goings of kings and of nations. And I bet if you were listening for the first time today, most of these kings that I read you have never heard of. But Abraham you have. All those kings have dropped off the, the, the important picture of world history, but Abraham remains front and center of world history. You see, we are children of the Most High God, and we need to embrace this and understand this. We live in nutty times. We live in a world that is in turmoil, both in wars and rumors of wars, and in this pandemic that is circulating around the globe. But the political craziness that is taking place in BC and in Canada and United States, it can consume us. This COVID stuff can distract us and, and just keep our eyes on earth rather than in heaven. But what we need to do is to realize that all this is secondary to what God is doing in your life as a child of God in my life and what God is doing in his church. Let me illustrate that in just a, a, a couple ways. And I've used some of these texts before. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 to 2. It shows us the interaction between the kingdoms of the world and the work of God for his people. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged them. That's world history. That's a, a battle that you can find recorded in the annals of time. But then you come to verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. There is redemptive history taking place. There is God working through his people, working out the purposes of his people through what is taking place in history. Think about um, one of the, the most amazing times in our world history, the birth of Jesus. And you read about this in Luke chapter 2. And listen to the description of world history. It says, in the days there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus ruled over one of the largest empires the world has ever known. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And then this. And Joseph went up also from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And as we know, what is the most important thing that came out of that time of history? It wasn't Caesar and the registration. It was what God was doing through Joseph and Mary to bring forth the birth of Christ. And then you can flip over to Luke chapter 3. And there, again, this fascinating account of world history and events of it and it says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar there's one guy Pontius Pilate was governor over Judah there's another guy King Herod being a tetrarch over Galilee there's another guy and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Eritrea and Trachonitis there's another guy and Licinius tetrarch of Albion another guy during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas and then this word the word of the Lord came to John this is it's amazing stuff it's just a reminder to us that the stuff of world history is secondary 
What matters is redemptive history and what God is doing to bring a people to himself. You just need to read the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. And again, you see in those books the incredible worldwide history that unfolds. And yet at the center of that is the way of God and the work of God through and in the people of God. God's focus is on his children. Never lose sight of that in the world in which we live. God is working out his plan for his people and his children. The second thing that I want to point out, and I hope I can do this quickly, is simply the pointers to the historicity of Abraham. This chapter has been used by so many people to try and debunk the real history of Abraham, to say this is just a made-up story, it didn't happen. What I want us to understand, at least briefly, is the Bible is trustworthy. And it fits together. And it makes sense. And it is true. And it will be proved true. And God's word is true. And there are a number of difficulties in this chapter. As far as I understand, none of these kings in these cities have been positively identified. Genesis 14, though, is not a series of sort of brought-together stories to make up some mythical thing that happened in the life of Abraham. There's too much going on here that makes sense historically. Just as I said before, the ways of the kings in wars. This is what kings do. The pathway that the kings would have taken down the king's highway or the trade route, the stops along the way, make sense as they line up. The geographical descriptions are accurate and sequentially true. The tar pits or the asphalt pits that are in the dead street, there, there is evidence of those today. The fact that names have been updated and changed gives us a historical sense of reality here. That king of Bela, that it says that is Zor now, or the valley of Sidon, that is the Dead Sea, or they came back to invade and Mishpat, that is Kadesh. These are all pointers to the historicity of this account. And then out of nowhere we read of Abraham the Hebrew. This is the first time that that word is used now to describe Hebrew. He, Abraham, there's, there's some indications of where it may come from, but I'm not convinced of them. This is just simply the description now of Abraham, the Hebrew. Some are troubled with the picture of Abraham as a warrior. Out of nowhere, he becomes an international figure, routing a formidable coalition of kings. We more readily associate with Abraham sort of a passivity, a, a pastoral role as he looks over sheep and cattle and he lives in harmony with the people around him. But here we see Abraham defending the land that God has given him. And we find how this whole chapter fits together. It makes sense as you read it and understand what's going on. And then we have the appearance of Melchizedek. Strange, out of, out of nowhere, this king of Salem comes on to the scene. The writer of Hebrews is in no doubt that this was a real king and a real priest who lived in real time and history. And so there are enough pointers in this text to give us assurance that this is real history and Abraham is a real person. I want to take a couple minutes now and just look at the intricacies that are involved in being part of the world but not of the world. It's a fascinating text to help us understand as God's people how we are to live in the world but not be of the world. And there's two ways that we can approach this. One is a, making a few comments about Lot and the second is through the actions of Abraham. 
and in particular, his response to the two kings that come and meet him as he's coming back with all the spoils of war. So first, think about Lot. When we last checked in with Lot, it was clear that there were some forebodings that his choice to move out of the land of promise down amongst the city of the plains, a place that was like the Garden of Eden or like Egypt, the breadbasket of the ancient Near East, that he was making a bad decision. That as he lifted up his eyes and he saw the, the, the provision and the bounty of those lands, we are meant to associate with Eve looking at the fruit on the forbidden tree and lifting up her eyes and seeing it and other accounts of that kind of thing. And we mentioned that it seems that Lot was um, not aware of the moral darkness. His eyes saw the physical attractiveness, but he did not see the moral dangers of moving towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we read this text, and I've already mentioned, what do we read? He says, now Abraham is, or Lot is living in Sodom. Again, a pair of the, apparently unaware of the hidden dangers of there. I've seen such movements far too often in my life as a pastor, even in my own lives. It is never wise to step outside of the promises of God and the word of God to be attracted by our eyes or our senses towards things that look good and appear good and to be ignorant or unaware of the hidden dangers and the moral traps that await us when we leave the will of God and the provision of God. It is always foolish to go beyond the promises and the provision of God. It never ends well. In contrast, we have Abraham. Or Abraham says, after his return from the defeat of Cherdolramer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley, which is probably the valley of Kidron, which is just outside of Jerusalem. It would seem that Bera, now king of Sodom, had pulled himself out of a tar pit, had had a shower, cleaned himself up, and now was sort of chasing after these four kings and probably was unaware that Abraham was coming back with him. And all of a sudden they meet at this valley. And notice, before the king of Sodom speaks, Melchizedek speaks. This is really important just to, to, to follow the train of this. And second, what this means is that the king of Sodom, remember, a wicked place, a dark place, witnessed the interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham. And in fact, I suspect that many of the captives heard the interchange between Melchizedek and Abraham. This is the grace and mercy of God. Here is an opportunity for these wicked kings and these pagan people to hear about God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. To hear that described and to hear his way with Abraham and his provision for Abraham. And you think, well, what would they do with that? What would they do with the things of God that they heard on the plane that day? Amazing things. It was a significant interaction. And I, I hope you realize, if you've lived long enough on this earth, that, that when you hit periods of great victory, there's a letting down of your guard. 
Sometimes you climb a mountain peak and sometimes that's when people actually fall off the mountain because they made it to the top and, and they let down their guard and they're no longer careful anymore. There can be the people of God that fight a great battle and win a great victory over temptation. They let down their guard and ten minutes later they're, they're, they're in trouble. And so here we have Abraham in this really difficult situation. And we ask ourselves, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to be able to discern the difference between the worldly benefits that the king of Sodom is offering him versus the eternal benefits and the spiritual benefits and the blessings that are being offered him by Melchizedek? You see, as the people of, as the king of Sodom and the people around them watch this, Melchizedek, the first thing he does is he brings out bread and wine. It's a, it's a wonderful picture. It's a simple provision, but here is Abraham and his men coming back, and they would have been exhausted. They would have been hungry. They would have been thirsty. It would have been an intense battle. And Melchizedek comes out, and he offers them nourishment and refreshment in the form of bread and wine. And I understand that the appearance of Melchizedek is mysterious. He just is. He just shows up. But there's no reason to doubt the historicity of this any more than we might doubt the historicity of the nine kings. But what made me think about this was fascinating for me. And I believe this is true because it's woven through Scripture. This incident reminds me how often my thinking is so small. Abraham was not the only worshiper of God. Abraham might have very well thought, I'm the only one of God's people that's living around here. But there was in Salem a king of righteousness, a king of peace, a priest of the Most High God in the midst of an evil world. And he not only believed and worshipped the Most High God, but it would appear that he was even nearer to the Most High God than Abraham was. And I thought about Elijah who thought he was left all alone to serve God in the midst of Israel, who had gone whole hog after the Baals. But we read in that account how one of God's servants had set aside a hundred prophets and hid them in two caves and fed them and nourished them. Or we read about God himself, how he says to Abraham, when Abraham whines and cries, and, or Elijah says to him, I'm the only one that's left, there's nobody else. And God says, no, I have 7,000 in Israel. That, not have, that have not bowed the knee. You may think you're the only one in your neighborhood that stands for Christ. You may think that you're the only one in your elementary school or your high school that is a Christian. You may think that in your workplace, you're the only one that, that is trying to stand for God and live for God. You may think you're the only one at your university in your classes that believes the word of God and the truths of God and have committed your life to Christ. But a passage like this reminds me that out of nowhere, God can reveal his servants who are walking with him and serving him. I don't understand it. I, I don't know how God does it. But around the world, in the strangest of places, God has his women and men who worship him and follow him and serve him. In his priestly role, Melchizedek comes and he blesses Abraham. Few words, but powerful words. Blessed be Abraham by God most high. I love this tagline, possessor of heaven and earth. Abraham, this God is with you. 
Abraham, this God is for you. Abraham, there is no greater God in all of the universe. He has taken you under his wings, Abraham. And then he, he blesses God, this Melchizedek priest of God. He speaks well of God. And he says, blessed be God who has delivered your enemies into your hand. What an acknowledgement. What an explanation of how 318 trained men with maybe a, a thousand more can defeat four powerful kings from the north. How can they do that? Because God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, gave them into their hands. And you could read accounts like this of Gideon, who with 300 men defeats an army that could not be numbered. You can read about this as Jehoshaphat stands before God and they're surrounded by an army which he describes as a horde. And he says, oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Such an amazing phrase here. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, who has given you, Abraham, these armies into your hand. And what does Abraham do? He worships God. He gives God a tenth of all the spoils that he had accumulated. Loved ones, we need to fix our eyes and our minds on truths like this. Do you ever think of God in terms like this? El Elyon, God Most High. When you pray, when you walk, when you talk with God, is that one of the realities that fills your heart and mind? And, and then do you flow out of that into possessor of heaven and earth or creator of heaven and earth? That is, not, there's no one like that. No one. And that is the God that has rescued you. That is the God that has called you into relationship with him. Can you think of anyone greater? Can you think of anyone more powerful? If this is true, is there anything God cannot do? Is there anything God cannot provide? Is there any way God cannot help you? Is there anything or anyone that is outside of God's control? Outside of God's possession? Do you understand how a truth like this can influence your praying? Does a belief in this reality change your thinking? God most high. Possessor of heaven and earth. God is real. And that changes everything. What's amazing to me is after this exchange with the king of Salem, the king of Sodom now speaks. Remember the king of Salem brought out to Abraham wine and bread? What does the king of Sodom say? Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He's trying to dictate the terms of Abraham's relationship with him and in the world. And Abraham now had a significant choice to make. And I read this and reread this in my mind, and I thought very much of the temptation of Jesus as, as, as Satan took him, up, took him up to the high place and said, Listen, I'm going to show you all the kings of the world. They're going to flash through your eyes. And if you just bow down to me, I will give you all of that. The king of Sodom is enticing 
Abram to make a deal with the devil. Who is the king of Sodom to demand anything? Who is the king of Sodom to be even able to propose such a deal? All the spoils of the war, war, all the people were Abraham's by right. He had captured them from the kings of the north. The disadvantage and the danger behind the offer of Sodom, or king of Sodom, could only be seen with the eyes of faith. What does Abraham say to him? I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Do you see how that protects him? Do you see how that truth and that knowledge of his God saves him and delivers him and serves him well? He says, I have said, I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abraham rich. This is significant. See, this is faith, faith sight that's guiding Abraham. I'm not sure when Abraham made this vow to the Lord, but it's really amazing. And in effect, what he's saying, you know, my trust is in God. My confidence is God. My reliance upon, is, in, uh, is upon God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I don't need you. I don't want you. My wealth and my possessions come from God, not from you. I will wait for him to supply my needs. I will wait on him to direct my steps. I will wait on him to guide and direct my life. And I will be beholden to you, king of Sodom, for nothing. And then with a sense of humor, he says, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. <laughs> Can't take that back. And as for the men who went with me, they're on their own, and they can keep or take whatever they want, but I will not keep anything that is yours. This is just a small glimpse of what it means to live in the world, but not be part of it. And the, the question that needs to be answered is, how will you live in this world? Who will you depend on? Where is your sufficiency? Is it in the bread and the wine of the king of Salem? Or is it in the promises and the provision and the deals of the king of Sodom? It's only by faith that we can see the advantages and the disadvantages of what the world offers. I've got one more point. I've got to make it. I'll try and make it quickly. The glories of Christ woven through Genesis 14. You can't miss this, loved ones. There are pointers to Christ in this passage which are beautiful. It wasn't until Abraham realized that Lot, his kinsman, his relative, was in trouble that he took action. He understood the obligation that he had towards his relative or towards his kinsman. And after the great victory, as he came back with all the spoils, he brought back all the goods, but it's also very clear to note, and also his relative or his kinsman Lot and his good. I think the text wants us to make sure that we don't miss that interaction. We're reminded by James a few months ago of the obligation that we have towards one another. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and would cover a multitude of sins. On one level, what would you do for a sister or brother that was taken captive? What dangers would you face in order to deliver them from dangers? But more importantly, we are in need of a great redemption because we have been taken captive by our sin. We are held under the power of death 
We have a ruler over us who is cruel and evil. We need a redeemer, Jesus Christ. And this passage points me and reminds me, and it should point us all to the great redeemer, Jesus Christ. Do you understand what Christ did to give us freedom? Do you understand the battle that he engaged and embraced in order to deliver us from the power of death? In order to deliver us from the captivity of sin? In order to deliver us from an eternity separated from God? Christ came to rescue you. Christ has fought for you. Christ has defeated the armies of heaven and hell for you. And God is able to make you alive together with Christ if you will but put your trust in him. And you will be able to say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the last, he shall stand. And then the second thing, the second glory is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is meant to point us to Jesus Christ. It's, it's amazing the way the, the story is told, but Hebrews brings that point to us that, that, that in Melchizedek, we have a, a pointer to Jesus Christ. Christ, who is the king of righteousness. Christ, who is the king of, uh, of peace. Christ, who is the one who has always been, who is without father or mother or gene genealogy, had neither beginning of days nor end of days, but is one resembling the, uh, resembling the Son of God. He is the one who is appointed as a priest forever. He will never die, so he always lives to make intercession for us before the throne of God. He will never be replaced. He always lives to uphold us before God, to sustain us before God. He is the guarantee of a better comfort covenant and it's through Jesus that we are able to draw near to God as the writer of Hebrews says we have this sure hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek is Christ your sure and steadfast anchor for your soul oh, amazing in the storms of life, in the, in the pangs of shame and guilt, in the turmoil that we face, we can have our anchor firm and sure and steadfast eternally in Christ Jesus. Is he the anchor of your soul? Oh, the glories of Christ in this passage, our great Redeemer and our High Priest forever. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for this chapter which it's so easy for us to run by and to look past but is full of incredible wisdom for life here and guidance for life everlasting be with your people i pray encourage them and for those who still need rescue may they lift their eyes to jesus the redeemer of their soul and find him to be their sure and steadfast anchor. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.